Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue today our encore presentation of the series Heaven with a message entitled, How to Be Sure You're Going to Heaven. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 90, verses 9 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld. I once had a conversation with an old friend about life after death. Through a series of events, he had gone from being an atheist to becoming fairly convinced that there was, in fact, a God. That was good. But there was more. He had become convinced that Jesus was probably the Son of God and that the tomb was probably empty. And that was a lot. And on the basis of that, we had our new conversation. Somehow, our conversation centered on heaven and life after death. My old friend told me that he had no reason for believing he will survive his own death. He said that if there is life after death, I guess I'll find out then. I answered by saying that I never knew of anyone who took a journey from which he would never return without making some arrangements or to inquire of the nature of that journey. It seemed pure folly to set out on such a journey and simply say, I guess I'll find out if I should have made preparations when I actually get there. It seems wise to think about these things before one actually sets out. Well, he agreed, but he still had a lot of questions about how anyone could know what kind of preparations he or she should take. I told him that the Bible provides, in my words, I said, a travel brochure. He really should take the time to read it fully. I still pray for my friend, believing that he will make progress to repentance and faith in Christ before the day of his death. The reason I raise this issue is because belief in an afterlife among all cultures in earth is strong. McLean's Magazine recently reported that 81% of Americans believe there is a heaven, and in Canada, the number is substantially lower, but yet well over one half of us also believe in heaven. And when it came to belief in hell, that number among Canadians dropped to lower than one-third of us. In fact, some studies, one I know conducted in the UK, found that more people actually believed in heaven than believed in God. Furthermore, as McLean's magazine reported it, most of us confidently believe that God is non-judgmental. And so the expectation of going to heaven is an expectation of the majority of people, regardless of religious affiliation. Most people think they're going to heaven after they die, and if there is a hell, you would have to do something really horrifying to actually get there. Now, if you begin listening to this series on heaven yesterday, you'll remember we began with a discussion from Psalm 90, a psalm written by Moses some 3,500 years ago. We noticed several things in this ancient poem. First, Moses, a man who witnessed much death and was constantly on the move, begins by professing that God is his dwelling place, his place of security in an ever-changing world. We also noticed that Moses placed a great deal of emphasis on the fact that whereas God is altogether everlasting, we are not. Our lifespan is but a short moment in time, and soon we are no more. In Moses' own words, the years of our life are 70, or if even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is full of toil and trouble, and they soon are gone and we fly away. And then we also notice that Moses stated, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all our days pass away under your wrath. For Moses, the reason for death is twofold. First, the issue is sin. And by that, Moses meant that we have all broken God's divine law. And in response, Moses thought that God was angry, and in his anger, he had subjected all humanity to death. 
The reason we die, said Moses, is because God is provoked because of human sin. Were it not for sin, we would not be facing death. And then yesterday, we noticed that about 150,000 human beings die every day in our present world. That would mean that every six years, the size of the entire population of the United States of America enters into eternity. Every six years, a population the size of the U.S. is wiped out. And in this, we noticed either one of two options. Either God is simply watching but unconcerned with his appalling cataclysm, or God in his anger, as Moses said, is putting people to death. So much so that our present 7 billion population will all be wiped out. None will remain. Now, I think the Bible's own testimony is the latter, that God brings us to an end in his anger so that we end our years with a sigh. But even for those who disagree that God is merely allowing all of us to die, where does this confidence come from that we're all going to heaven? If God is not saving the human race from death right now, that he allows this unrelenting highway of human carrion falling over as a waterfall into eternity, then Moses invites us to consider a question. In Psalm 90 verse 11, he asks, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Here now is the all-important question. Are you overwhelmed with the power of God? Because if you're not... You're a fool. But, and this is the interesting thing about verse 11, it's a rhetorical question. The answer to the question is no one is overwhelmed with the power and the wrath of God. I mean, that seems almost unbelievable. The groans, the cries of anguish, the weeping, the daily sadness of the human race, when you think about it, is overwhelming. Death is the major issue of the human race, and there is not one thing we can do to stop it. Now, are you depressed enough? Feeling a bit morbid, are we? Wondering how you'll answer anyone when they ask you, how was that Back to the Bible broadcast today? You'll have to say, well, I've never been so depressed. Well, good. Because until you deeply consider your situation, you will never learn how to live or what is important or what you need to do. Rather than having so-called pie-in-the-sky ideas about heaven based upon assumptions that have a foundation in nothing at all. Perhaps we need to get real and think about it. What I will call five prayers of those who dare ponder the power of God. So here's the first of them. Pray this prayer. Dear Lord, I need to get a perspective on my life. Listen to Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know, the idea of numbering our days may seem foreign to us. So if you knew that you had 100 days left to live, for instance, maybe you're in prison on death row and knew the date of your execution and you thought about it and you might wake up tomorrow and say, well, I've got 99 days left and the next day I've got 98 and so forth. And as the number got smaller every day, you would become much more sober in your assessment about how you'd want to think about each day and the value you might place on that day. And if you paid a lot of attention, you might ask yourself, what is the wise thing to do with every day that you had? I mean, should you write letters? Should you make amends? Should you try to gain a perspective of your life? You know, of course, most of us don't know how many days that we have, but God knows. Because according to Hebrews 9.27, our death is according to the appointment of God. God has your day written in his daytimer, and you will die right on his schedule, even though you work out and eat bean sprouts and stay gluten-free. 
But as Moses told us in verse 10, we know the approximate lifespan of people. In Canada, that number is around 82 years of age. If you live to 82, you have somewhere around 30,000 days from birth to death. 30,000, that's it. And if you're really brave, you might get out a calculator and shock yourself as to how many days you can reasonably assume that you have left. The prayer request that Moses had is really quite simple. Teach me how to number my days. That basically means help me get perspective on how short my time is. And from that, let me gain a heart of wisdom. That's the first prayer. Now, here's the second. Dear Lord, treat me as an object of your mercy. Let me read Psalm 90, verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. I want you to notice the last word here, servants. Moses sees himself not as a rebel to God, but as one who is created to serve him. And as one who willingly bows his knee to God, he is mindful he is not deserving of God's blessing. So he asks that God would treat him with pity and that God would have compassion on him. And that's the second way we should pray. Have pity on me, O God, and treat me with mercy and not as my sins deserve. Having considered the power of your anger, having allowed myself to see that your anger is related to human death, what can I do but to go to you for mercy? And as Moses would see it, heaven is not a default position, as if we are all going there unless we do something really evil. Rather, he believes that the reality of death tells us that we have all done something really evil, and that God is provoked and is putting us to death, and that the only way we can respond is to go to him for mercy. And if the Bible is right, heaven is not assured, but heaven is given as a gift of God's grace in spite of our sins. That's why before we actually talk about heaven, we need to talk about how we can actually get there. And when we come back, what I want to do is to show you what the Bible tells us about making sure that we can go to heaven. Because the pathway to heaven is a difficult one, and we might not get there after all. Join me when we come back. Just a reminder that our first 2017 issue of Truth in Life magazine is available this month, so you'll want to subscribe now to ensure you receive your very own copy of our bi-monthly ministry magazine. The February issue is focused on relationships. How do we honor God in our relationships? And for 2017, we'll have two new featured articles, one based on your questions arising from our new Truth in Life Today program, and another by Pastor Ray Duick, sharing a pastoral response to the specific theme of the current magazine. These articles, along with regular features from Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, our Bible reading plan, and so much more. So don't miss out. Request while quantities last. You can receive your free subscription of Truth and Life by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. In Randy Elkhorn's book on heaven, he cites a Los Angeles Times survey in which for every one person who believes they're going to hell, there are 120 who believe they're going to heaven. And yet, in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 
According to Jesus, the majority are going to hell and not heaven. And that accords perfectly with Moses' thoughts in Psalm 90. See, according to the Bible, not only is heaven real, but so is hell. So many people, when they decide to move beyond the fairy tale Jesus of human imagination and read the real eyewitness accounts of the real Jesus, are shocked to find out how many times he spoke about and warned about hell. He called it the hell of fire. He warned about the dangers of going there often. In Matthew 10, 28, he warned us to fear God, the God who, in Jesus' words, has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. Indeed, in Luke 12, Jesus even said that God has authority to throw us into hell. He said that if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It would be better for you to lose an eye than to go to hell where suffering never ends. Jesus told a parable of a rich man suffering in hell and receiving no mercy, none, even when he pled for it. The Bible says that hell is a lake of fire. Indeed, Revelation 20 verse 15 says that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he or she is thrown into the lake of fire. And so let me say, there can be no greater goal in life than to have one's name written in the book of life. We need not only to face our death, we need to face the reality that follows death. There is a judgment to come. In Revelation 20, verse 11, John the Apostle writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And it turns out that God records our days in a way that we do not. Moses prayed, have pity upon me. You know, all of us should hear that, that there is but one basis upon which pity can be found. Since God is not only gracious, but is also just, justice must be served. And it was. 2,000 years ago, Christ was brutally tortured to death on a cross. And while hanging on that cross, he drank the full cup of the Father's righteous anger for the sins of the whole world, which include your sins and mine, and suffered in a way that is staggering to think of. No man ever suffered like this. But he did so, according to Romans 4, verse 5, so that anyone who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, and by the way, that's you and I, we are ungodly, that anyone who believes in him, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let me put that simply. If you today will turn from your love of sin and of sinning and turn to Christ and believe that his horrifying death on the cross satisfies God's desire for justice, and if you surrender your life and your future and your way of life into his hands, you will have your name written in the book of life. That's where mercy is to be found. You can begin by praying, Lord Jesus, I believe that I'm a sinner and I want to turn away from my sin. I believe that you are the Son of God and that you died for me. Today, I surrender my life into your hands, and that is the only solution for heaven. Now, of course, all of that says more than what Moses could have said. You see, Moses lived before Christ, and he simply believed that he needed mercy. But we know from the rest of the Bible that it's in Christ where mercy is to be found. See, I hope you see, heaven is not a default position. It was earned by Jesus, and what he did must be applied to your life by faith. Now, let's get back to Moses. When he thought about his death, he prayed five prayers. The first was, teach me how to get perspective on what is important in this life. 
The second, have pity on me. Show me mercy in spite of my sin. Here now is the third prayer. It goes like this. Dear Lord, help me discover genuine joy. Listen to Psalm 90, 14 and 15. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Here I want us to notice the words steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word chesed, which is the love of God expressed in his covenant. That's the word that we as New Testament believers attach to the covenant that we have with God through the blood of Christ. Through my salvation offered in Christ, grant me joy in this life. That's the prayer. See, what Moses wants out of the covenant is reasons for joy all of his days. Yes, the plight of fallen man is to see evil days, hard and tough years. We will see things that reflect a world where everything is broken and nothing works the way it should, and where grief and sorrow touch us. But I want to meet God every day. I want to find him, and in the covenant he has made with me, I want to find a cause for joy. Now, here then is the fourth prayer. Dear Lord, show me your majesty. You know, in verse 16, Moses writes, Let your works be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Moses knew about this. He had seen God humble the Egyptians with ten astonishing acts of power. He had stood on the shores of the Red Sea. He had woken every morning to see God's people fed by manna. He had seen God appear in fire at Mount Sinai. It's what he hungered for, to see God. And that's exactly what we should pray for. God, let me experience you in the days I have here on earth, so that I might also experience you in the days after this earth. You see, it makes no sense to portray a picture of heaven replete with golf courses and beautiful women and enough to eat and drink and not hunger for God. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. Pray that you might see God's majesty and hunger for it. And then comes Moses' fifth prayer and his final prayer. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, he prays, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So here's the final prayer. Dear Lord, let me do what matters for eternity. You know, I had a very, very dear friend who's now in heaven. Pastor Carlin Weinhauer used to say, I want to be involved in something that matters a hundred years from now. If God establishes the work of our hands, it will be work that the wind won't simply blow away. I want to be involved in what is eternal and enduring and everlasting. And that interest in the things of God, an interest in the things of eternity, and of redemption, and of forgiveness, and of grace and mercy, these are the things that matter. So here's the question for you. Are you praying this way? If not, let me take you all the way back to verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Don't you see? It's only when Christ returns, when evil is finally vanquished, when he establishes his eternal kingdom, will this age of death finally be removed. Until then, you and I should gain a heart of wisdom. We should prefer that which is eternal to that which is temporal. We should look at death and the world to come with a great seriousness. For many, an unwise person has taken their eyes off the ball and has forgotten about death. God the judgment to come, the reality of their need to mercy. Indeed, they have never gotten perspective of the reality of their own death and the reality that they are but like grass. 
And some of us have allowed ourselves to become sidetracked in the things that don't count for eternity. And we in this have not considered the power of his anger. And without any wisdom at all, we have merely assumed that we are going to heaven. And we have lived a life of illusion. And if that's you, consider that you have but a short amount of time remaining. But as you consider it, don't despair. Sue God for mercy. Ask God that he might apply the death of his son to your account. Come to him and say, oh, Lord, here's my life. I surrender it into the hands of Christ. You take me and you make me as you want me to be. Amen. John, I'm so excited that we're doing this series again because it really reminds me of the great teaching that took place and how much it re-energized me in respect to the biblical understanding of what heaven was all about. But like last time, you know, I don't think I expected you to spend so much time right off the top talking about death. It's so important to talk about death um, for a number of reasons. I mean, the majority of us, the vast majority of us are going to heaven uh, through the portal of death. Yes, there are those people that will see Christ when he returns, but throughout history, the majority of God's people have entered into his presence through that portal. So since that is the place where we are going, you know, I think we need to talk about that place. And uh, I think that we need to give God's people a a great deal of confidence as well when they go there uh, that heaven awaits them. So please don't be afraid of that moment. Yeah, and I think, you know, that is one of our great fears, even as Christians, the fear of death. And we ought not be afraid of death, should we? Well, I think one of the reasons we are afraid of death is because we haven't had enough teaching on heaven, and perhaps our confidence hasn't been solidly enough built in the Word of God, what Christ has done for us, how our sins have been removed. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I said it's not the default position of everyone. Um, We are by nature children of wrath, but Christ has died for us and borne the wrath of the Father. So all of that needs to be remembered. Ben, you know, when I hope that when I'm at the place of my own death, if I die before Christ returns, I pray that, you know, a godly pastor will come to me and remind me of the glories of heaven that lie before me. You know, if I remember right, your dad had that perspective of heaven. Yeah, my dad really died in a most remarkable way. I, he gave me so much confidence when I think about my own death. And, you know, his, his focus was so on Christ. I remember him telling me, he said he'd been at the bedside of others, friends, uh, even his own uh, close people, very close to him, who had died and had not had confidence. And he said, I don't know what's going on with me. I'm getting more confident every day. What a great message and what a great way to live. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. At the end of this month, Back to the Bible Canada, along with Dr. John Newfeld, will be conducting our first Pastor Bible teaching conferences in partnership with Back to the Bible India in both Pune and Hyderabad, India. This conference invites pastors in India to join Dr. Newfeld for intensive training in the skills of effectively studying, preparing, and presenting the Word of God. What an incredible opportunity to equip pastors to effectively engage literally tens of thousands of people with the life-changing truths of the Bible. 
people. Now, to maximize the impact and opportunity for pastors to attend, we're asking our listeners to partner with us. For only $40, you can make this great ministry development opportunity available, and it includes the conference registration, study resources, and meals for a pastor. Just call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate on our international page at backtothebible.ca. 